this preacher keeps saying over and over that everything under the sun, everything on this earth, everything in your life is a word he calls hevel. Say hevel. Hevel. What does hevel mean? I'm going to teach you a new language, okay? Kids, you get to learn a new language right now. Hevel is a Hebrew word that means fleeting or like a vapor. It's kind of like what he's saying is it's kind of like trying to catch bubbles. You see them there. You know they're there. You know they're real. But the second you start to get a hold of it, it's gone. And that's what he's saying a lot of life is like. Or chasing after the wind is another way he says it. Try to grab a hold of the wind. You can't really do it, right? So he says a lot of life is hevel. It means that you can't really grasp it. And what Wade and I have been saying to all of your parents, to all the adults, the whole time we've been going through the book of Ecclesiastes, is we have been saying this. The point of Ecclesiastes, you got your notes, you can write down what the big idea is. The point is that a life without God is meaningless. Or, that's the word we use for what the preacher says, hevel. A life without God is like trying to catch bubbles. But a life with God matters. That when we have Jesus, and when we know that we have life through God because of what Jesus did, and because his spirit is dwelling within us, that we actually can grasp, we can grab a hold of life. And we're going to talk about what that looks like today, okay? So, look with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 7, adults. Kids, if you didn't get a clipboard, there's some back there. Write stuff down. If you have a question for your parents, write it down so you remember to ask them after this, okay? If you got a question for me, you can come up and ask me afterward too. Or you can raise your hand at any point, and I might call on you if you're sitting there nicely. And you can ask a question even while I'm talking, all right? But we're going to read Ecclesiastes chapter 6, verses 10 through 12, before we move on to chapter 7. And this is what the preacher of Ecclesiastes said a long time ago. He said that whatever exists, that's everything under the sun, whatever exists has already been named. And what humanity is, that's us, human beings, has already been known. No one can contend with someone who was stronger. That means no one can fight with someone stronger than them. The more the words, the less the meaning, and how does that profit anyone? For who knows what is good for a person in life during the few and meaningless, or hevel, like bubbles, through the few meaningless days they pass through like a shadow. Who can tell them what will happen under the sun after they are gone? Pray with me, guys. God, we pray that your word would teach us today, and not just teach us so that we would know more information or be smarter people. God, we pray that you would teach our hearts to trust in you more. We pray that you would help us to chase after you instead of the things in this world that are fleeting, that are like trying to grab a hold of bubbles or grab a hold of air, and it's gone. God, the things in this world are good, and you made them good, but we know that they are not forever. Only you and your word stands forever. So help us to trust in you today. Help us to be transformed by you today. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so he says, whatever exists has already been named and what humanity is has been 
known. Here's the interesting thing about names. Uh, let's see. Huntington, what's your last name? Suarez. Did you choose that? No. Where did that name come from? How did you get that last name, Suarez? Dad? Yeah. He kind of said that with a little disdain. <laughs> Dad? <laughs> he made me have that name. Yeah, you didn't get to choose it, right? Liam, what's your last name? Preby, good job. Gold star. Yeah. Your, your name, your last name especially, is something that identifies you with your family, right? And your first name, your first name, Samson, right? Who calls you that? Those two, yeah. Yeah, yeah, your whole family, right? Did you choose that name when you were born? No. Isabella, did you choose your name? No. But you like it? That's a good thing. That's a good thing. Jeremy, who gave you your name? My parents. Yeah. Our names, which help us find our place and identity, also, they also show our position in life. Someone who gives a name to you is someone who came before you. Your parents lived before you, right? And your parents' parents gave them their names. Someone who gives you your name is someone who comes before you and is over you. Like it or not, your parents are in charge. And so what the preacher's saying here is everything in this world has already been given a name. And he says what humanity is, is already known. That means humanity has already been named and already been established as a certain thing. Who gave humanity its name? What do you guys think? God, the creator of humanity, right? Who came before humans, who stands above humans, who is in control of humans and all things in creation. He gave the humans their name. And then he creates other creatures too, right? He makes the animals, he makes the birds, he makes the fish, he makes the gross little bugs. I don't know why he did that, but he did. And he brings all the animals before the first human, and what does he let that first human do with the animals? He names them, doesn't he? God lets the first human, as his representative, he says, you're going to be like me, human. You get to name these other creatures now. You get to have a place over them. But the preacher says in here, nobody can contend with the one stronger. No one can stand up against or fight against the one stronger than them. The animals cannot come and start an animal revolution and take over the earth because God has set an order in place where we are called to have a word called dominion, which means we're in control, but we also care for the animals. In the same way that God has dominion over us, God has control over and also cares for humans. And we can't contend with him. We can't fight against him. When he says that phrase, no one can contend 
with someone who is stronger. Kids, who is stronger than humans? God. That's right. God. We can't, we can't go to God and say, God, you named me. I don't like that name. You told me who I am. I don't want to be that. You made me a certain way. I don't want to be that way. I'm going to choose for myself my name, my power, my position, my role in the earth. And here's the thing. The writer of this, the voice of this in Ecclesiastes, this man, the preacher, he's looking at the world and he's seeing people try to do this time and time again trying to fight with the one who came before them and named them and trying to take control away from him for themselves. And this is why he says, all of this happening under the sun, all of this on the earth, it's meaningless. It's like trying to grab a hold of those bubbles. And every time you think you're making a name for yourself, it's gone. That even the people who do the greatest things on this earth, the coolest things you've ever seen. They seem like they're the most powerful people, the smartest people, that at the end of it, they still, they still end up just like everybody else. They end up, after going to lots and lots of parties, they end up going to a funeral, don't they? So he says, who knows what's good for a person in life during the few and fleeting days, meaningless days, they pass through like a shadow. Who can tell them what will happen under the sun after they are gone? You are here one day, and you are gone the next. Chapter 7 starts like this. It's continuing this idea of the name. Chapter 7, he continues to write, A good name is better than fine perfume." Have you, guys, have you guys smelled your mom's perfume before, kids? Yeah. Some of you are like, I don't know if she wears perfume. I, I, used to, I used to put on tons of body spray in junior high. Tons of Axe. Too much information. Yeah, you're right. It is too much info. Sorry about that. And it was too much odor, too. But... When the writer in here is talking about perfume, he's not talking about a cheap body spray that you could find at Ross now. He's talking about, in those days, perfume was this very, very expensive, rare thing that most women could not get a hold of. And he's talking about it in a very specific use right now. Listen to what he says. A good name is better than fine perfume, and the day of death better than the day of birth, a funeral, better than a birthday. It is better to go to a house of mourning, that's sadness, than to go to a house of feasting, that's celebrating, especially with food. For death is the destiny of everyone. That's where everyone's going. The living should take this to heart. Frustration is better than laughter because a sad face is good for the heart. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. It is better to heed the rebuke of a wise person, that means someone is telling you when you are doing something wrong, than to listen to the song of fools. 
Like the crackling of thorns under the pot, so is the laughter of fools. This too is chasing bubbles. The perfume was used at funerals because in those days, they didn't have a technique that we have in funeral homes now called embalming. And what they would do is they would bring flowers. You know how flowers started getting brought to a funeral? Not because they look pretty, although that's nice, but because the smell of the flowers and the smell of the perfume would cover up the stench of death. Have you kids ever walked by your trash can and been like, oh, this stinks? And there's, yeah, many times. And you got to start taking the trash out for your parents. That's what that means. But there's stuff inside of that garbage can, inside of that trash bag that is old, that is no longer useful. There's banana peels where the bananas have been eaten, and they are dying. They're rotting, and it starts to stink. And this would happen at funerals when a person's life would pass from them. The breath of God that he breathed in our lungs so that we could live, when that would go away, all that was left would start to decay. God made the first man out of dust from the ground. Did you know that? And it wasn't until he breathed his breath that they had life. And the Bible tells us that every single person who came from dust in the beginning will eventually go back to dust. Now, don't worry, kids. We're going to get to a happier place in that in a moment. But you got to go here with me for a second, okay? All of us return to dust. And when that starts to happen, that process of returning to dust, it stinks. And so they would use perfume to help cover up that strong smell. And what the writer here of Ecclesiastes is saying is that you know what's even better to cover up the stench of death? to cover up the stench of sin in your life is a good name. When you go to a funeral and you hear people talk about that person and they talk about all the good things that person did and they talk about all the ways that person loved other people, they're, what they're doing is they're sharing, this person had a good name, there's a good reputation. Now unfortunately, that's not always true about everybody. And sometimes when you go to these funerals, people will lie about that person and make them sound a little better than they actually were. And that's like spraying body spray, Axe, on a smelly junior hire. And you're trying to cover up the stench of a life lived without God that has been meaningless. And so the writer's saying what's better than that is having a good name. There's a well-known pastor in America who just passed away recently, Eugene Peterson. Many of you might be familiar with that name. Eugene Peterson recently passed away, has written tons of really helpful things for the church, wrote some great stuff on the Psalms, and there is a good name and reputation, at least in many circles, around that name. Eugene Peterson, this, this person was very helpful in helping me understand the gospel, the good news of Jesus. But even someone who spent their life devoted to helping people understand who Jesus is also has some bad things said about him. Eugene Peterson is also the author of The Message, a translation of the Bible that many people have just attacked and said this is terrible. And 
in all honesty, myself being one of those people. Because the translation itself at times seems like it fails to be faithful to what the original text really was. But Eugene Peterson wasn't writing as a theologian. He was writing as a pastor. And as I started to hear more about that, it helped me change my view. He was meeting with people who didn't have much education and trying to figure out how can I explain this to them. And that's where the message came out of. But the point is that even someone who devoted his life to trying to help people know Jesus still can have a tainted name. And that's what Ecclesiastes is saying. At the end of everything, no matter what you've done, no matter what you've done in life, the good or the bad, the wise things you've done, the foolish things you've done, the smart things you did, the dumb things you did, the ways you were strong and people were applauding you, and the ways that you were weak and hiding from people. At the end of your life, you end in the same place. And at the end of your life, your name is no greater than any other human beings because even someone like Eugene Peterson, it'll take generations, maybe generations, but he'll be forgotten. The name of humanity has already been known and we can't contend with God and make ourselves greater than we are. And so verse six, the last verse I just read, says this interesting thing, like the crackling of thorns under the pot, so is the laughter of fools. What he means by that is when you're trying to start a fire, like think about when you've gone camping and you're trying to build a campfire, you need some good wood to get that fire to burn for a while, right? It can't be wet. It can't be too rotted or dried out. And sometimes I've had moments where I've tried to build a fire and I can't find decent wood around, and so I'll gather up little twigs, gather up thorns, gather up sticks, little pine needles, throw it in there, and try to light that on fire, and I'll get a fire going. And you hear little cracks, pop, pop, pop. And the fire doesn't last very long, because there's not a lot to really hold the substance of that flame. And it dies out quickly. And what he's saying is, even the fun times you have going to the birthday parties, even the celebrating, even the really good moments when you enjoy things, even those times, they go away quickly. And what foolish people do is they hold on to those moments. They hold on to those moments where I can go out with my friends and I can party and have a great time. They hold on to those moments when the weekend is coming and I can leave my job at work and I can just go and rest And they hold on to those moments that come and go, that are fleeting, that are like bubbles. And we see them before us, and they're there, and then they're gone. Fools do that, he said. But a wise person, a wise person, he's not saying don't go to birthday parties. He's not saying don't enjoy the things of life. But what he's saying is a wise person will also go to the funeral will also visit people when they are sad and mourning. Will also look and examine their own life and that one day the funeral will be theirs. And in that they will recognize what God truly has given them. What God truly has established for them. And the limitations 
that come with being a human in this broken world and strive to do the best that they can with that. So the rest of chapter seven, he starts to lay out, here are the ways that people try to make a better name for themselves. Here are the ways that humans try to contend with God and make their name stronger. And it's good to be wise through all that, he says. This is, this is the turn in Ecclesiastes where it starts to get less depressing and a little more hopeful and a little more advice is given. And so he talks about it's good to be wise through all this, but part of that wisdom is recognizing that all these things you try to do to make yourself great will eventually fail. So let's read through that joyful text right now. This is what he says. We're in verse 7 of Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Extortion turns a wise person into a fool, and a bribe corrupts the heart. What he's saying is you can try to strive after money, gaining profit, wealth, possessions, and sometimes we do that through ways that harm other people. We do it at other people's expense so that we can build ourselves up and have a great name. But even that is chasing bubbles. Verse 8, he says, the end of a matter is better than its beginning, and patience is better than pride. Do not be quickly provoked in your spirit, for anger resides in the lap of fools. The pride and the arrogance that we have, that we think that we could make a better name for ourselves, that leads to anger when we recognize that we can't, when we see that people aren't applauding us the way we think they should. People don't recognize the work that I've done. I'm not getting things as quick as I thought I should. Anger starts to set in when our patience is tested and when our pride is challenged. Verse 10, do not say, why were the old days better than these? For it is not wise to ask such questions. Remember, he's telling you, look forward to the end of your days. Don't look back on past days thinking, man, how great were these? When I, whenever I hear something like this, I always think of that movie Napoleon Dynamite with Uncle Rico. You guys know what I'm talking about? My advice to myself is always don't be an Uncle Rico. If you remember, Uncle Rico would always live in the past and talk about his glory days as a football player in high school. Man, I could have gone all state. I could have been pro. I bet you I could throw a, a football over the mountains over there. Right? He's, he's living in the past and he's an he's a aging man now hanging out with high school kids. And it's just sad. It's a movie. But there's real people that live that way. There are times that I live that way where I think about another season in life that has come and gone that was fleeting like bubbles. And I look back and I go, man, that was so good. I missed that. Why can't I have that again? And God's going, no, no, no. I'm taking you through this season now. And there's something here for you in this season. And it may be harder than that last season, but I'm using it. I am using it to teach you. I am using it to form you. I am using it to help make you wiser. I am using it so that you'll understand more these things under the sun. And this season too is going to pass. And you're going to move into another season. And that season may have its challenges, but it may also have its joys. And don't hold on to the moments of laughter and the birthday parties and 
hope that they never end. We just celebrated a lot of birthdays with friends of ours recently. And I made the mistake of telling one of my friends, uh, Ecclesiastes told me it's better to go to a funeral than your birthday party, so I can't celebrate it with you. But we celebrated a lot of birthdays in this season, and they're fun, and you want to hang on to those. Like, I remember as a kid, you get to that last present, and you're like, that was so awesome. Oh, there's no more presents? What? That was it? I've been looking forward to my birthday like 12 months, and it's gone like that. He's saying, there are more seasons to come. Don't try to hang on to the last ones. A wise person, a wise person looks forward and ahead to what God is doing. Why were the old days better than these? Do not say that, for it is not wise to ask such questions. Verse 11, wisdom. So he's, he's laying out all these things, pride, patience, money, glory days. None of those things are going to make a better name for yourself. This is where he starts to give a little advice. Wisdom, like an inheritance, is a good thing. This is a good thing. It benefits those who see the sun. We're under the sun. We're part of that fleeting stuff, stuff that's going away. But there is a benefit even in the temporary things of life. Wisdom is a shelter, just like money can be a shelter. But the advantage of knowledge is this, that wisdom preserves those who have it. Hold on to wisdom, but remember the wisdom is the wise person who looks at their life and says, this is temporary. What do I do with what I have? Consider what God has done. Who can straighten what he has made crooked? Again, he's going back to, you can't challenge the stronger. When times are good, be happy. Enjoy the birthday. But when times are bad, Consider this, that God has made the one as well as the other. This season that is harder in my life, God has given that to me, just like he gave me the last season that was fun and exciting and energizing. He is doing something with both. Therefore, no one can discover anything about their future. In this fleeting, meaningless life of mine, I have seen both of these things, the righteous Those are the ones who stand right before God. The righteous perishing in their righteousness. They go to funerals too. And the wicked living long in their wickedness. Those who do bad, living a long time. Those who do good, dying young. He says he's seen this. It doesn't happen like that all the time, but he's seen this. And he's trying to make sense of it. And so this is what he says. Do not be over-righteous. What? Is the Bible telling me not to be too good? Do not be over-righteous, neither be over-wise. Why destroy yourself? Do not be over-wicked and do not be a fool. Why die before your time? It is good to grasp the one and not let go of the other. Whoever fears God will avoid all extremes. Okay, hold on. You guys, I've been reading this all week and it has been confusing me so much. What is he saying here? Don't be too good of a person. Don't be too bad of a person. There's a happy medium right there where you could be a little bit of a stinker and also be a nice guy. 
Or be the Sour Patch Kid. Like first you're sour, but then you're sweet, and so everyone loves you. Is that what he's saying? What do you kids think? That's exactly how I felt this week. Yeah. What is he saying? Listen, listen. That statement, don't be over-righteous, is not saying, it is not saying, do not strive to be right with God. What it is saying is do not strive in your own power to be right with God. Think of it this way. Do not be self-righteous. He says you'll destroy yourself. You try to be overly righteous and overly wise, you will destroy yourself. You will run yourself into the ground trying to do all the right things all the time, trying to say all the right things all the time, trying to follow the formula so that God will accept you. And what he's saying is you can't do it. But don't give up either. Don't give up on doing good. That's what Paul writes later in the New Testament. Don't grow weary of doing good. He says, don't just lay down and go to the other extreme and just do terrible things and be a selfish person because you can. I can't be a good person anyway, so I might as well just do what's fun in the moment. No, remember, he called that person the fool. It's not wise. It's not displaying what God is like. It's not loving. What he's saying is this. You, in your own power, cannot do enough good to make your name greater because you cannot contend with what you are. There's hope coming, though, you guys. There's hope coming. There's a way around this. There's going to be a loophole we're going to find. Keep going with me. He says, at the end of verse 18... It is good to grasp the one and not let go of the other. Whoever fears God will avoid both extremes. The answer here is in fearing God, that will keep you from trying to be self-righteous and to make yourself good and your name great in your own strength and finding over and over again you can't do it and you keep failing. And that will also keep you from just letting go and being a terrible, selfish person. Those who fear God. When we read that, don't think of the word fear that we use in our culture. When we say fear, we think of like Halloween's right around the corner, like being afraid of something. That ghost over there is really scary at that haunted house, right? No, that's not the fear that we're talking about with God. It's the recognizing he is stronger I can't contend with him. It's the recognizing his name is greater. He has come before me and he is over me. And that he could, he could destroy me at any moment and he has every right to because I have failed to be the righteous person. But we also know he hasn't. Not only has he not destroyed us, but he's given us a promise that he is coming to make all things right. The author of Ecclesiastes is living in a time where Jesus has not come yet. He doesn't know the things we know. In all of his wisdom, he doesn't know what you and I know. But he still lives 
after the time where God made a promise that I will come one day and make all things right again. Fear God, the one who could destroy us because he's stronger, but who instead has the type of dominion over us where he controls and cares for you and I. Verse 19, wisdom makes one wise person more powerful than 10 rulers in a city. Don't go after your own strength, your own human might. The wisdom of God is what brings power. Indeed, there is one on earth who is righteous. Sorry, there is no one on earth who is righteous. No one who does what is right and never sins. That's why he says don't even try to be over-righteous. You can't do it. Do not pay attention to every word people say, or you may hear your servant cursing you. For you know in your heart that many times you yourself have cursed others. Ooh, that one stung this week. I was like, what? There's nobody out there saying mean things about me. Everyone loves me. No, there's probably a few things out there. Because I've said some things about people I shouldn't have said. Like, that's just the nature of our wicked hearts. We attack people, each other, people who we love, brothers and sisters. He says, listen, don't, don't put your stock, don't put all your weight, don't put all of your identity on what people say about your name. You know that you've also said terrible things and brought their name down. They're going to do it to you too. Remember, there's a better hope coming. Verse 23. All this I tested by wisdom and I said, I am determined to be wise. Okay, we're learning in this chapter 7 right now. There's all this stuff, these options, none of them seem to work. All right, wisdom is the one he said that works. Let's just, let's end this sermon like this. You guys go out there and be wise. Mm, He says, this was beyond me. This is wisdom literature written in our Bibles, inspired by the word of God. If this guy is not wise enough, you and I are not wise enough. Whatever exists is far off and most profound. Who can discover it? So I turned my mind to understand, to investigate, and to search out wisdom in the scheme of things and to understand the stupidity of wickedness and the madness of folly. This is where he ends. This is what he finds, okay? I find more bitter than death. Remember, I told you we're talking about death and misogyny today. Be patient with me as we read this. I find more bitter than death the woman who is a snare, whose heart is a trap, and whose hands are chains. The man who pleases God will escape her, but the sinner she will ensnare. Look, says the teacher, this is what I have discovered. Adding one thing to another to discover the scheme of things while I was still searching but not finding, I found one upright man among a thousand, but not one upright woman among them all. This only have I found. God created mankind upright, but they have gone in search of many schemes. Ecclesiastes 7 is really making my job hard today, you guys. I found one upright man, which, like, not doing so good, but there's, I found one in a thousand who's, like, doing a pretty decent job of being a righteous person. I couldn't find any of the ladies being upright. What is he saying there? I listened to a, a couple sermons on this, you guys, and I would listen to other preachers say, well, here's the thing, like, man, you're not doing a whole lot better. One out of a thousand isn't a whole lot better than zero out of a thousand. 
that's not his point. I want you guys to know that. He is not saying men are somehow a little bit better, but still not good enough. That is not at all what the writer is saying. So here's what we got to think about. Many people have thought for a long time the author of this is Solomon. Solomon had 700 wives, 300 concubines. You could ask your parents what that means later. A thousand women. He found them from all over the world, people who worshipped other gods. They were not part of the family of Israel that God called to worship him. They worshipped other false gods. So if Solomon did write this, perhaps he's saying, in all the thousand women I've surrounded myself with, that's the number he uses, a thousand, none of them worship the true God. Who's the one he's talking about? I don't know, maybe he's so egotistical he's talking about himself, the one man. Maybe he's talking about his dad, David. Here's the wrench that was thrown in this. The wrench that was thrown in this is all this time, Wade and I have been saying, as we've studied this more and heard more from more current theologians and historians, what we're finding is this likely was not Solomon. So then I'm like, oh man, I can't use that out anymore, right? And so what do we do with that? Here's what's interesting. Here's what I found. And this is a tangent, but it's an important one because I don't want you guys leaving here and going, man, like men are just a little bit more right before God than women are. That's not true. Verse 27. We haven't seen quotes in a while. If you look in your Bibles, you're going to see quotes here. Quotes around, look, says the teacher. This has been the voice of the teacher the entire time. I think there's an emphasis here on purpose that the narrator who's using this voice of a wise person, what he's done, we, we explained this to the adults before, what he's done, kids, is it's kind of like saying, you know what, if, um, who's, who's a famous person of past, you guys who are doing well in history? If Martin Luther King were here, if George Washington were here, if Abraham Lincoln were here, they would say this probably. This is kind of what the author of Ecclesiastes is doing. He's saying, if someone like a Solomon, a great king who was known for his wisdom, who tried to find joy in all kinds of things in life and couldn't find joy in anything under the sun, if someone like that person were here, this is what they would say. And I think he does this emphasis on the quotations here on purpose. He's saying, look, says the teacher, This is what someone like a Solomon would find. In trying to find joy and pleasure and chasing after women to use for his own gain. Not entering into a relationship with a woman in a way that glorifies God. And this is evident in the verses before that. The woman who is a snare, whose heart is a trap, whose hands are chains. The man who goes with her does not please God. Right? So he's saying... Someone like a Solomon who's looking to find pleasure and joy in life and that kind of thing is not going to find the righteousness of God. That's important. But what he's not saying is if you look hard enough, you will find a couple men who are good at it because he ends with this. And remember, he's already said this earlier. There's not one who does righteousness. But he ends, verse 29, this only have I found God created mankind upright, 
but they have gone in search of many schemes. He's talking about all mankind. Every man, every woman, every child, you, me, every person in here. God gave us a name. He created humanity, made us in his image, made us to be his representatives. He made us upright. Where did we go wrong? We turn away from him and his plan for us. We turn away from his promises. We turn away from his warnings even. We turn away from his word and we listened to the word of the enemy, of the liar. And we did that because we wanted in our own hearts to contend with the one stronger than us. We wanted to be in his place. We wanted to make a greater name for ourselves than the one he gave us. And the one he gave us was good and upright and we destroyed that. So we did, we created a name for ourselves. The name of rebellion, of sin, of death that no perfume could cover the stench of. Here's the good news. Do you remember when God comes to Moses in Exodus 3 in that burning bush and he tells Moses, I want you to go and I want you to lead my people Israel free, out of slavery from Egypt. And Moses is scared and he says, who should I tell them sent me? Do any of you kids know the name God tells him? This is the first time we hear God use a name for himself in the entire story. Do you know what that name was? Adults, you can help your kids out. God says, I am who I am. We could do studies on that for years and never get to the bottom of it. But here's scratching the surface. I am who I am. And other translations have gone on to say, and I will be who I will be. I have always been. I am right now. I will always be. No one can contend with me. You try to ask me for my name, there is not a name fitting. I am. And we see this throughout the story of the Bible, throughout the story of the world. When we cry out, God, is anyone listening? I am. God, is anybody going to do anything about this? I am. God, is anybody helping me? Is anybody helping me through this addiction, through this thing I keep going back to and I don't want? God says, I am. And I will be who I will be. He comes to the people of Israel and he says, I will be your God. And out of that name of God, we then find a name for ourselves. I will be your God and you will be what? My people, because of who I am, I will be your God. You will be my people. I will bless you and make your name great among the nations so that you will be a blessing to the nations around me. And what we see is even in the temple that he calls Solomon to build, God says, I have put my name there. In 2 Chronicles, we see that God says, all of you called by my name who I created for my glory. The people of God throughout the Old Testament were carrying the name of the Lord with them. And because of that, he made their name great. 
And you say, well, something happened, though. Something changed. Something went terribly wrong again. And they abandoned the name of the Lord, just like Solomon did, chasing after the gods of those women. But you know what? When Jesus comes, and I want to read this to you. When Jesus comes, when God first gave his name to Moses, he shows up. He shows up in the dirt. He shows up in a poor little town. He shows up among all the smelly animals that Moses was hurting and caring for. When Jesus shows up, he shows up in the dirt of a manger, of a stable among all the smelly animals, the same way I am did. And in John 8, Jesus is being questioned quite heavily by the religious leaders, all those in charge. And he says, they start asking him about who he is and how do you know all these things? You didn't know our father Abraham who came before us, who God called and made this people out of. And Jesus says in verse 57, sorry, 58, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Before this, he told them that their father is the devil, and they just kept a conversation going. At this point, when Jesus says, I am, they pick up stones to throw at him to kill him. Why? Why? He's saying he is the I am who I am. I will be who I will be. I am the Lord your God in the flesh here with you. God's name who you disregarded, who you dismissed, who you took in vain. You carried it with you in vanity because you were going about your own name while you claimed the name of Yahweh. Jesus says, I am and I have come to be with you again. The name of God present with humanity once again. And Jesus, Jesus who comes in the power of the spirit of God, who lives the perfect life that none of us could live, who doesn't lift up his own name, but lifts up the name of his father in everything he does. When he leaves to go back with his father, he says, Matthew 28, I want you, I want you, to go to all nations and invite them into this identity with me. He says, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The end of Ecclesiastes 7 there, God has made us upright, but none of us are anymore. Jesus has come to completely undo that. Jesus was the promise to come and set all things right. That if you try to do things in your own name, make a name for yourself, you will fail trying to be self-righteous, trying to do things your own way, overly righteous, overly wicked, they will both fail. But fear the Lord, trust in the name of Jesus, and he will give you a new name. Do you know Revelation 4 says that? He will give you a new name. When the apostles are going and healing people who couldn't walk before and now they're walking, in Acts 7, they say, in whose name and power do you do this? And Peter says, we do this in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is the name that we carry, just like Israel carried the name with them in the temple. We carry the name 
of Jesus. If you are in Christ, you are no longer who you once were. That identity is gone. And you now carry a new name, Christian, brother, sister, child of God. You carry the name of Jesus with you. Go and baptize others into the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Invite people into that family with us. That's the name we're called to carry, not in vain. I'm convinced the Ten Commandments, God doesn't say, you know, don't murder people. Oh, and also, like, don't cuss. Like, we turn, don't take the name of the Lord in vain and don't say, oh, my God. God's not even his name. No, no, no. What he's saying is you're carrying the name of Yahweh with you. You're carrying the name of Jesus with you. The spirit who brought Jesus into this earth and who brought him out of the depths of the grave, Jesus has given to us. Jesus said, I will pray to my father and he will send my spirit in my name to you. You carry the name of the Lord if you are in Jesus. That makes you upright before God. That makes you righteous before him, not in your own strength and your own power, but in everything he is and what he's done for us. We're going to get to go to the table now together, family. We do this every week, and we do this on purpose because it is better to go to a funeral than to a birthday. We go to the table, and we remind ourselves that Jesus went to death, the stench of death, on our behalf. But his death, his funeral, leads to our birth. And so when we go to the table, we don't just go and be really sad about it. We go, we remember the cost Jesus had to pay with his life, but we also remember that he rose back to new life and that he's given us his spirit so that we can rise to new life and be a new humanity and we celebrate like a birthday party. And so we get to do that now. As we do that, there's gonna be a song that plays. We're gonna let the whole song ride out if you guys can keep that going. And it just repeats the same thing over and over again but let it wash over you. Jesus washes away my sins. He washes away your sins. He washes away your shame. He washes away that old identity, and he gives you a new name now. And we're gonna go, and you'll even hear it in the song as it transitions. It starts off, we're at a funeral, you guys. Jesus had to die for you and I. But we transition into a party, a feast, a celebration that we now have life because of him.